The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi there, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Hope you're having a great Monday to start off the week. I'm very excited. I've got two amazing guests this morning. First up, photographer and author Bill Aaron is standing by to join me. He's going to talk about his latest book, New Beginnings, The Triumphs of 120 Cancer Survivors. And uh, we have so much more to talk about. So it's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Bill Aaron. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Janine. Thank you so much for calling in. My pleasure. Fellow New Yorker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fellow part-time New Yorker. Part-time New Yorker. Okay, okay. So I see you've got your beginnings as a photographer in the 70s? Yes, I started with in the era of street photography in mm-hmm. 1974, I guess it was. Okay. And uh, transitioned from there to portrait photography and then to a participatory portrait photography. Um, What I really liked about street photography was the interaction Mm -hmm. with people and the the, the, uh, stylistic convention at that time was not to interact but to be a bystander and to show life as it happened. And, uh, well, I guess to show the ironies of life as it happened. Um, And... Uh, but I enjoyed the interaction, and so I developed my style through that. That's I great. should also say that um, I have a Ph.D. in sociology, and 1974 was the year I began to transition from sociology to photography. So the sociology kind of informs my worldview. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the idea of taking oral histories and interviews were integral in the development of the book New Beginnings. You know, it's very interesting. I have a doctorate as well um, oh. from Boston University, and I, oh. I studied um, qualitative and quantitative research, and one of the things I loved was observing people and, uh-huh. yeah. and, and be learning you know, how to become a better listener. And there's so much you can really learn by just being still and observing, right. you know, whether right. you're on an elevator or whatever. Yeah, I had a professor at the... Well, when I was at the University of Chicago, I became friendly with a sociology professor at uh, Northwestern, Howard Becker. Mm-hmm. And he taught me uh, the concept of participatory, what was it, participatory, um, involved in observing people, okay. but also participating with them. Yes. And that he, he, his idea was that you just by virtue of observing mm-hmm. someone, you influence the group. So why shouldn't you be a part of the group? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great, so he's a great man. What were some of the things that you were observing? I mean, the 70s, what, we had garbage strikes and milk strikes and so <laughs> the whole, you know, I told you I was living there at the time. It's, it was an interesting uh, time culturally. It was. Um, I started out by... Uh, Photographing on the Lower East Side of New York, mm-hmm. and there's the at that time there were the remnants of the old Jewish immigrant community, and I really loved doing that. I, at the time, I was also working at an organization on the Lower East Side, so I had ready access, um, and it became a way for me to explore my own 
lifestyle and how I wanted to lead my life by talking to and um, photographing the people on the Lower East Side. That's fascinating. And how did you, now you have a current project called New Beginnings. How did, um, you know, this whole backstory of what you're getting started in New York lead into this? Well, I was diagnosed in 1993 with cancer, oh. and there was no internet that I had access to at that time. Mm-hmm. So I went to medical libraries, and I would come away petrified with what I read because medical libraries wrote up, you know, only the, the worst cases. Sure. Um, and along about, you know, I had surgery, and they did not get all the cancer, and so mm. um, it became an idea. Uh, the wisdom at the time was when you have your first invention, if you don't get all intervention, if you don't get all of the cancer, it becomes systemic. So I struggled with how to live with that idea, and I went to a support group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I and I, uh, there, I met a fellow who said that cancer was the best thing that ever happened to him, yeah. and I just stared at really? belief. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I could not believe that, and I questioned him, and I pushed him, and he kept on, you know, he insisted, and he went through all the changes in his life, and then I began to meet other people like that, and that became the kernel of a project that I wanted to do, and when I was ready, it was about 2006, I interviewed two people. Uh, and photographed them, and it mm-hmm. was just such a cathartic experience, oh, cathartic in the good way, mm-hmm. um, f- uh, for both of us. What's interesting is the theme of the show is get the funk out, and sometimes, and I tell people, you know, life's a crazy roller coaster ride, and you can be in this terrible funk, going through this terrible time, and sometimes the outcome is possibly the best thing that ever happened to you because you're a different person. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the... the uh, what I generalize from my experience and from this book is the idea of survival. When we are forced to confront our own mortality, that makes us also confront our lives and how we've been living them. Right. And uh, it just it makes no sense if we're unhappy to keep on going in the same direction. Um, I had a friend who was in a canoeing accident, and he thought he was going to wasn't an accident, but he was canoeing on a, a river, and he thought he was going to go over this huge waterfall. And he relates that this incredible calm came over him really? uh, when he had accepted that there was nothing he could do, and he was going to go over the waterfall and probably mm-hmm. die. And there happened to be a lifeline, which he didn't know about, uh, at the edge of the waterfall. So he, of course, didn't go over. Right. And that made him confront, he was in graduate school at the time, and it made him confront the fact that he really didn't, this, he really wasn't in graduate school for himself. So, and what he wanted, what he was studying was not what he wanted to study. And so he changed schools and mm-hmm. changed his major and, and, and became a very happy individual. That's great. So I think in general, this idea that we can get out of the ruts we're in is a very important one. A friend of mine once said, a close friend, that he doesn't want to have cancer, mm-hmm. but he wishes he could have some kind of experience like that so he could change things in his life. Isn't that interesting? And at first, it, it just 
struck me as an odd thing to say, but then I began to realize that I was that way. Right. You know, I was weighed down by a lot of things that about my life that I didn't like, mm-hmm. and um, and that I had to make these changes. Uh, but I could make the changes until I had gone through this experience. Right, right. You have to go through the storm to find your way out into a new perspective. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to put it, actually. Yeah. So tell me about this book, because how did you find all these cancer survivors, 120 cancer survivors? Um, the book is about 120 individuals, mm-hmm. and like we were talking, what they dis- talking about what they discovered about themselves. It's really not about the diseases that we call cancer. Um, I first started with some people from the support group. And I quickly realized that I wanted to weight this towards younger people, people in their 40s and under, mm-hmm. teenagers. I wanted to have families of small children. And I found on the web a group called Planet Cancer, which was actually four people under 40 who were diagnosed with cancer. And I read through the discussions. I read through the short bios that people posted. And I made notes and got in touch with uh, some of the people that I thought would be good for this book. And um, I would say 95% of the people responded positively and really were thrilled about participating in this idea. That's great. And it, it really took on, and even early on, it took on the shape of the kind of book I wish had existed when I was diagnosed. Um, and I thought I would do 100 people and that that would make a strong statement as opposed to one, two, three, mm-hmm. or even, you know, five people or 10 people. Um, and when I finished a hundred, my publisher, I asked my publisher if we could wait because there were some other people that I really wanted to include had, who had terrific stories to tell. So she said, fine. Oh, that's good. And, uh, you know, along about four or five months later, she said, well, you know, by my count, you have 120 people. I think it's time that we put this book to bed, so to speak. Right. Um, and so it became 120 survivors. And, and, and I think the kernel and, and what, you're, what, what you talked about as well is that every one of these 120 people discovered, and on the basis of confronting their mortality, they discovered a desire inside themselves to make their lives mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, Rabbi, there's a rabbi in Los Angeles, Ed Feinstein, mm-hmm. who learned about angels. And he says that cancer taught me that the goal of life is to become someone else's angel. Oh. Um, you know, an like angel that. is someone who appears, a person who appears in your life at a dark time and helps you through that time. I like that. Another woman said, uh, if all I had to do was lose my hair, and a piece of my arm, it was worth it. Uh, another woman, uh, I can't control how long I live, but I can control how I live. So people really took this lesson, yes, and they took on, because of it, they took on a project of trying to make the, be- the world a better place to live. I love it because it has a lot to offer people that are struggling. I believe so, mm-hmm. and people who have um, read this book who have had other kinds of problems, um, not just cancer, um, f- 
found meaning and inspiration in the in the stories of the people. That's wonderful. It's a kind of hope. It represents a kind of hope that most of us think may not be possible. Did you ever imagine, I mean, it seems like all the things that you've done led up to this as a photographer and, uh, you know, focusing on people and their stories, but this, this must have made so much sense to you as a project. It did, and it does combine all the various parts of my life, which I, I really love. Mm-hmm. I didn't plan it that way. The project grew organically, but as it was growing, I began to see how I learned about participant observation from Howard Becker. Um, I learned about you know the stylistic conventions of photography from various teachers, and uh, I was just putting together. And, and also there was the kernel of that, um, there was the kernel of the idea for the book. Mm-hmm. And it just came together wonderfully. But, but also I'd like to mention that um, when I started the project, and even in its early stages as I began to see what was developing, I didn't, how can I put it, it wasn't that I was, it wasn't that I had a mission. It yes. was more that each person I spoke with showed me something different, something about, showed me a different way to find the best in myself. Mm-hmm. So each person, each of these 120 people really, became a teacher of mine of sorts. Uh, they became a teacher that showed me a better way to think about the world and a better way to live in the world. Mm-hmm. Sure, because I can imagine you're listening to a story of somebody who's got stage four cancer and what they're going through, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, look at the perspective they have. Right. You know? Right, right. And many, I would say, excuse me, most of the people in the book were in a much worse situation than I was in. And here I was shaken to my core. Right. And imagine what it did to the other people. Right, yes. Excuse me for one second. That's okay. Sorry, I hope that wasn't too loud on no, the radio. No, it was not loud at all. <laughs> <laughs> I've had dogs barking, all kinds of things going on. That was nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really interesting because um, when I was, I was mentioning earlier, I studied a lot of, um, did a lot of research, uh, qualitative research, where you're just interviewing or observing. And, and sometimes you start something and you don't really know where it's going to go. So you, uh, themes start developing or something mm-hmm. pops up and then you go down that path and you just have to be open to the different paths that open up. Yes, um, exactly. And I think that's the idea of participant observation, that you, you participate, you observe, and you take notes, mm-hmm. and you constantly review the notes. I mean, I do my projects that way, too. Uh, I will, well, before with film, I would make 8 by 10 prints of the things I liked, mm-hmm. and then uh, every one, you know, once a week or so, I would go through the prints into two piles, ones that I still liked and ones that I thought didn't wear so well. That's great. So you, you, you develop an understanding of what's going on around you and what, what's inside your mind and, where, and the direction it's going. Right. Did you ever have uh, doubts about what you were doing? Because I know sometimes um, I got my Ph.D. very young, so I would hear... How come you're not using your PhD? Or you know, I feel like all the experiences we have while we're going through graduate yes. school, especially a PhD, carry us through life. I really do. I I 
I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think what I learned in graduate school, even though I don't use it directly, I use it indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, it just informs everything I do, how I look and observe the world, how I see social problems, right. um, how I approach uh, my friends, not my family, because that's something different, that's but how I yeah. see groups. Right, exactly. I want to talk about uh, a project you worked on called Shalom Y'all. How did that <laughs> come about? <laughs> well, um, I have to back up. Okay. Uh, my first book was From the Corners of the Earth, um, which was about the Jewish communities of New York, Los Angeles, uh, Jerusalem, Cuba, Oops. and the former Soviet Union. So interesting. Uh, and when I, as I did <clears throat> each of those portfolios, I had an exhibition uh, with um, the Pucker Gallery, who represent me. They were in Boston. Mm-hmm. And then at, then at a certain point, I realized, well, you know, most books about communities are about one community. And here I have five. Right. And I think thought it would make a good book. And a uh, publisher agreed. Chaim Potok wrote a wonderful introduction to that idea. And uh, that was my first book. And so for the second book, Shalom Yal, mm-hmm. uh, there is an uh, Institute of Southern Jewish Life in Jackson, Mississippi. The director of that, Macy Hart, knew a woman who lived around the corner from me and was a friend, mm-hmm. a woman named Vicki Rikus Fox. And she t- Macy wanted to do something for his new institute. And so she told him about From the Corners of the Earth and sent him a copy. And he said, well, this is what I want to do. So they came out, and we talked about it. And I remember sitting in my living room talking to these people and thinking, how many Jews could there be in the South? This project, will, <laughs> wow, my first book took me like 10 years. This one I should be done, you know, in a year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, there are uh, Jewish communities in the South are quite large and quite active. And over the next 10 years, we, uh, Macy coordinated getting a series of grants to bring Vicki and I south for uh, two weeks at a time. I think one trip was three weeks. And uh, photographing and meeting with Jewish communities and traveling around, and it was just an incredible experience. Mm. Sounds so fascinating. Uh, it really was. Um, it really was. I think the, the Jews in the south... I think most people in the world think of themselves, outside of Israel, think of themselves as Jewish living in a certain place and having an allegiance to that place. But Southern Jews think of themselves as Southern Jews. In other words, the South comes first. I see. That's interesting. And uh, so that was a new perspective you got while you were in the throes of the project. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought they were just fascinating, and they did have a southern take on just about everything they did Jewishly. Um, one woman, you know, uh, there's, there are laws of keeping kosher, kashrut. Yes. And uh, we don't eat bacon and, and, and pork. And mix milk and meat. And mix milk and meat. So I was, whenever I would talk to a group, you know, and talk about the project uh, to to let the people know what I'll be doing and mixing in their community. 
um, I always ask people, what do you consider Southern and Jewish? And this one woman stands up and says, well, we Southern Jews have a secret for making our matzo balls. We put bacon fat <laughs> I in knew them. you were going to go there. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that was coming. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. That's real kosher. <laughs> that's funny. Did this uh, they had a great uh, sense of humor, and she knew it was funny. Of course. And everybody in the, you know, everybody in the audience laughed. Oh, that's cute. That's cute. Did that then lead to uh, the project you did at Chapman University? Um, that was a separate grant okay. uh, that uh, um, I, you know, <laughs> for a long time I fretted over building a website. How come? I, you know, I just didn't have the time. Yeah. Um, and I, I, not, fret, thre- not fret so much as procrastinate. Right, I know. So I finally got my website built. And, you know, nothing, I get it out there, and, of course, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, well, at least I don't have to say it's under construction. Right. And then there's, out of the blue, uh, the head of an organization um, uh, called the 1939 Club, we're all Holocaust survivors, called me up and said, we have this project we'd like to interview you about. And they found me through my website. That's great. Just yeah. <laughs> so we interviewed, and, and uh, it, it, it was fascinating. The idea for that project actually is a forerunner of New Beginnings, um, to photograph Holocaust survivors in Southern California, not as sufferers, but as people who overcame what they went through mm-hmm. uh, during the Holocaust. And the... Uh, the photographs are on exhibition at Chapman University. Um, there's a Holocaust Center there, um, headed by a Dr. Marilyn Harron, I think she pronounces it. Okay. Um, and then when I began to develop the idea for New Beginnings, I thought, well, if I could do something like that for Holocaust survivors, I could do that for cancer survivors. Yes. Now, I hope you don't mind me asking. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how are you health-wise? I am fine. I had, uh, in 2004, they discovered a tumor in my abdomen, so we hit it with everything. Uh, Targeted radiation and chemo and other stuff. Oh, good. And I did that for, uh, most of that lasted about two years, and since 2006, I have been okay. That's fantastic. And, you know, it's interesting for you to do this book because you were going through it, um, but then, as you said earlier, people were going through a lot worse scenarios of cancer, yes. different stages and situations. And they, um, I think, at the wellness community, the cancer support community I went to, there's the idea of being patient active. And its founder, a Dr. Harold Benjamin, mm-hmm. uh, talked about if you take an active interest in your treatment, it gives you a sense of control because mm-hmm. basically cancer is something that we think of as growing outside of our control. Mm-hmm. But it gives you control of your life, and it will enhance your quality of life, and it may even enhance your chances of recovery. And um, so this idea of being patient-active 
uh, is very important. What was your original question? I'm sorry, I, I strayed a little bit. No, no, that, no, that was fine. That was perfect. I, I thought it was just interesting how you were going through the same thing. And Oh, you know. yes. And what I was going to say and after that introduction was many of the people in the book rejected statistics. One person uh, told me, a musician, uh, he said, uh, it, I don't believe in statistics because if I did, you'd be talking to a ghost now. Mm. Um, and he had okay. very serious cancer in his jaw. They had to completely remove his jaw and rebuild it oh, artificially. Awful. Um, just, just a terrible, terrible and very advanced cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, another fellow um, with a stage four brain tumor said, nobody's going to tell me when my time is up. That's for me to decide. Great attitude. Mm. That's powerful. Yes. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that issue of taking control of something we can control, mental or physical, in our lives, I think probably I, I, now that we're talking about it, I think maybe making changes in your life is part and parcel of that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I, uh, a f- close friend of mine who actually has been on numerous occasions an angel in my life, an actress named Frida Shen. She, when I was diagnosed, she went to the health food store and bought every book on diet and cancer and deposited them on my doorstep. And, you know, while I was recovering from surgery, I went through most of them. Yes. And the ones that were based on the macrobiotic diet, it's basically a vegan diet. Yes. Um, sort of a balanced vegan diet, made the most sense to me. Mm-hmm. And so... I went out from to Johnny Rockets for my last hamburger, <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to visit. Uh, what's nice about macrobiotics is it's very organized. There are counselors all over the country That's that can good. help you transition and uh, guide you in what to eat and how to cook. Right. And then I went to my macrobiotic counselor, a great fellow named Vern Verona, who has a couple books out on the subject. That's great. And, and that was your last Johnny Rockets. <laughs> <laughs> my last, it actually was. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I used to take my kids there, and they would have a hamburger, and I would have a veggie burger mm-hmm. until one time I noticed that they were cooking the veggie burger on the same grill that they, they cooked are. the hamburger. Of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. We have to wrap up, unfortunately, but could you throw out your website for people who want to find out more information about you, Bill? Thank you. It's www.billaron.com, and Bill Aaron is B-I-L-L-A-R-O-N, uh, 1A. Okay. And the book is New Beginnings, The Triumphs of 120 Cancer Survivors. It's available in major bookstores and on the Internet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all those places. Perfect. And I put all the information about you up on my blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if anybody has missed part of the show, it will be up on my blog within an hour after we wrap. And Thank Terrific. you so much for calling in. This has been great. Thank you, Janine. It's a pleasure talking to you. You too. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Bill Aaron calling in. He's an author and photographer. Again, his bio is on my blog. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be joined by Raymond Francis. 